Hello, and welcome to the RevOps Pop, the show that goes deep into the world of revenue operations to deliver applied insights you can use to grow your business. I'm your host, Chris Bayliss, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Charles Proctor. Hi, Charles. Hi, Chris. So today, we're going to talk about CRM systems, because so much of RevOps is concerned with the use and movement of customer and prospect data. So we thought we'd devote an episode to choosing a CRM to power your RevOps function. So let's get started. And I think probably best to start with the basics because the answer to this question isn't as obvious as perhaps it might seem at first, which is what is a CRM? And maybe you take us away with some thoughts on that, Charles. Well, a CRM, it it has meant many things to many people. I consider the CRM is the piece of technology that controls how you move through a customer journey. So what are you going to talk to people about and how you're going to talk to them and what channels are you going to use? So that is the key functionality of a CRM. Within that, it will convert people from one stage to another. So they're either a marketing lead or they're a sales qualified lead or they're a prospect. But in broad terms, you are trying to map journeys to your customers and your prospective customers. That's the key functionality of a CRM. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, ultimately, what we're talking about is a repository for customer data with the functionality to really understand, I say customer data, customer and prospect data, and understand kind of where on that sort of life cycle, you know, as you you mentioned. So, you know, have they come in right at the top as a subscriber or a lead? You know, they go through that process of MQL, SQL, customer you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's sort of a management piece, right? But um, there's also these layers of functionality for doing stuff with that data. And I think this is where the question, to my mind, gets quite confusing because, uh, you know, I, I see it certainly in, in our business that when you talk to people about a CRM, you know, they talk, they consider it in very often, particularly those that haven't you know, got a particularly um, significant adoption of CRM in their business is somewhere, it's almost like an admin task. It's something where I need to record stuff and then it just sort of sits there. Um, and, you know, that's not right, but I think that's quite a common thought, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and my sort of interpretation of that is, yes, you've got to record stuff, but if you're going to talk to customers and prospective customers and give them relevant information, you've got to know how they're interacting with you. So it's key that you capture that data and store that data and then look at that data and say, well, if this customer has been on my website and they've looked at these products and they've given me their email address, that sort of gives me permission to talk about those products through email to that customer. So unless you've captured that data, you actually won't know how to talk to that customer. And therefore, if your sales team just ring him up out the blue, they're going to ask all of those same questions again, and they're not going to look as professional as they should. And this is about looking professional. We all have expectations generated primarily by our interface with Amazon (laughs) these days. So Amazon knows what we're doing all the time and sends us stuff about what we've bought before. Yeah, we're all normal people, so we expect all the institutions that we interface with to be as clever as Amazon, and therefore, that's what the CRM system is trying to do. It's so, so true, because I think you now really notice when 
a business has a poorly implemented CRM and a poorly sort of um, integrated data universe, for want of a better description. I mean, we had uh, a classic case of this the other day, or, or actually really over the last couple of months, where we've been looking at some new offices in a building that isn't finished yet. And I would say that I have been lost sailed, so I, a prospect that isn't going to buy something anymore, probably three times. Um, and because in a period I've been saying, yes, we're really interested, but we want to wait till it's open so we can actually look around it. And then I keep getting these emails saying, sorry, we couldn't help you anymore because some process in the CRM has said, ah, we've not spoken to them for, you know, 30 days, whatever. Um, and uh, therefore, they're not going to buy anything off us. So, you know, poorly implemented systems, not managed by customer data, no one looking at it. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's just that classic thing, isn't it? We, our expectations are now very high about how um, personal and how much a brand should understand us and our place in the journey and our opinions on on them and what we want to buy for them. And when that falls down, it's really noticeable, isn't it? Absolutely, because because as customers, we all invest time. We all, if we're trying to buy something, we invest some of our own time in looking for stuff. You know, we look for stuff we want to buy, and our expectation now is that yeah, you know, if we start interfacing directly with a company that part of our investigation started wide and has narrowed down to that particular company so we have looked up that company and potentially we have given them some information and we expect that company to then respond to that information and that applies whether you're actually a prospect or or a customer so we now have this concept of abm and account-based marketing which specifically says yeah, account-based marketing is this person is already a customer. We should know so much about this customer, we can talk to them and know exactly what they want from us. So again, and that's where a CRM comes in, when we talk about data, that should have sufficient data about all your existing customers. So you could ring them up or you can send them an email or you can send them a, a message, which is timely. It's at exactly the time they want to receive it. It tells them about the things they want to hear about, and it has some call to action for them to actually do something. And again, yeah, this is what a CRM is, and it is driven, it's all driven by data. You have to have good, accurate data about your customers and your prospects, and then use that to talk to them in an appropriate way. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's in a nutshell, that's it, isn't it? Yes, it's a repository for customer data. It always has been. But really what it, it is in reality and, and or certainly what it should be is a mechanism for delivering great customer experiences that help you convert into either you know, a larger contract value if they're a customer already or from a prospect into a customer. And, you know, I think that then touches so much of the organization. I think this is the other point to bring in, which is, I think it, traditionally CRMs have been perhaps perceived as something for the sales team that marketing systems might write stuff into potentially. And I don't think that's true anymore. Um, certainly when I reflect in, in the HubSpot uh, world, which we know so well, um, you know, really what you're looking at is a system which has customer data in the middle as its nucleus, but plugs in functionality for marketing functionality for sales functionality for the service operation and, and even now operations and cms and all sorts of other things going into this so i think that's the other point to really unpick is when we're talking about a crm that definition in terms of the functions what that crm enables you to do 
really isn't consistent from one technology vendor to another. No, and ideally, I mean, taking that, it should be the center of your ecosystem in terms of how you're communicating with your customers. So we talk about multi-channel and omni-channel. I mean, partly that is what CRM is doing. It is orchestrating all of those channels to make sure that you have a logical and consistent customer experience. So, you know, when CRMs first started, they were probably sat in your call center, but that's because that was it. That was the channel that you communicated through people. So at one point, CRMs were call center management systems. But obviously, as more channels came on and got added, they then become the center of your ecosystem. So again, it's looking at a CRM, you've got to work out what it is attempting to do, how it is improving that customer experience, what a customer experience looks like, what data do you have to capture as people walk through that experience, and therefore to take them to the next level of communication, whatever that is. So I think yeah. I think that's a key thing is to how does the CRM connect to your website? How does it connect to your sales team? How does it pick people up who have looked at your advertising and marketing? Yeah, you know, it's like you're putting banners out there. How do those banners drive people through to your website and how does and what data do you collect and therefore how do you control that across your crm and i think this is where things get really confusing isn't it because i think when you're talking about those kind of interactions in larger businesses increasingly we're seeing the cdp coming to do that role of of aggregating all of these data points together um, and building a sort of universe for segmentation that can then drive those kind of interactions, which actually sort of sits outside or perhaps alongside the CRM. So, I mean, do you want to just touch on that briefly in terms of, you know, what a CDP is and how it fits into that landscape? Yeah, this is a, this is a terribly interesting area because obviously if you've built something which is primarily, it's capturing data across a journey. So it's not necessarily capturing every piece of data to do with your customers that you have within your business. So if primarily the CRM is is concerned with joining up marketing and sales, there's a whole bunch of back-end systems which are to do with delivery of an actual product. There are back-office systems that could be systems that literally deliver product to people. Yeah, and that data is not currently being captured into your CRM. So you may know you've made a sale, but do you know you've actually delivered the product? So this is where CDP comes in, because CDP then holds the information, all information that you know about every single customer that you have or prospect. So as soon as you've identified somebody as a customer or a prospect and for some cdbs even unknown people but based on the technology they're using you can gather more information and the point about a cdp is it's structured in order to make that data accessible to all everybody in the organization who needs access to that data and that is a different level of functionality to a crm which is about building journeys and building points in journeys and making decisions at points in journeys. So they have to be structured differently to be efficient. 
And that's why CDPs have started to appear. Yeah. Where the confusion comes now, because CDPs have access to all this data, many CDPs now have logic built into them. So you have decision engines built into CDPs. So we're seeing this sort of convergence, aren't we, of the two things? And I think that will happen increasingly. I, you know, we were talking uh, earlier on about this, and you know, when you you type in CDP, I think you were saying that now HubSpot comes up as a as a search on things like G two as a, yeah. as a CDP, which they wouldn't describe themselves as that. But then when you read, okay, well, what's the functionality of a CDP? You think, well, yeah, it does that, does that, does that. Doesn't necessarily do everything. But then we probably look at one CDP to another and they're going to do different things. So. <laughs> exactly. So, for instance, a CDP, it might be because you've got all your data in there. Say you want to do a lifetime value model, you probably could do it in your CRM. There probably is some enough data in your CRM mm-hmm. to do some element of lifetime value. But there might not be enough. You know, If you've got 20 years history of transactions – you may not want to hold that in your CRM. It may not be the most efficient place to hold it. Therefore, you'd hold it in your CTP. You do the analysis around your CDP and say, right, I've now segmented my customer base. This is what my really valuable, really loyal customers look like. This is what my really valuable but perhaps not so loyal customers. They buy off a a range of suppliers. Here are the people who are prospects who look like they could be really useful to me, but they're not yet buying off me. So you could do all of that work within your CDP. And then all you have to do with your CRM, again, still data-driven, but you upload a summary of that information to your CRM. So your CRM is not having to access everything, but it has sufficient information in order to build the journeys gather the additional data it needs so that the CDP can reallocate people as they change from one segment to another. And this is why it's really, yeah, we will come on to this, but this is why it's really important that you know exactly what you're trying to do with your different groups of customers. And you've actually thought through that so you can do that basic analysis so you can get those journeys built within your CRM and therefore be more effective. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's absolutely why we, you know, started today with that conversation, because when you think, how do you choose a CRM, you know, the topic we're talking about today, you really have to understand what a CRM that is available on the market right now could do, because that might not actually match the definition of the category that you're trying to buy or the problem that you're trying to solve for. And when you think understand the sort of full sort of ecosystem functionality of, of a modern CRM, then the net you have to cast in terms of understanding requirements in the business, understanding goals that touch this piece of the tech stack. And I, I'd go far as to say the CRM probably is the most important element in your tech stack. Because it is that aggregator, it is that central point of customer data, and 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 what are we doing if not trying to influence customers as a business? Um, that then means that when we get into this process of okay, well, how do you choose? It isn't that simple in terms of mapping requirements. So that probably is a good segue into talking about well, you know, what is the process for choosing? And you know, I think for me and it's it's probably a sort of six step process right and we'll, and we'll try and drill into some of those steps you know really it's about that what we were just saying it's about that kind of consulting and well probably identifying all the stakeholders to 
in the first instance and you know key user groups within the business and really understanding from them what they need and i think from that then the sort of the second step is identifying the goals for the project you know actually really mapping out what are we trying to do here what does good look like how will we know when we found the right system and the right implementation of that system in terms of ticking off these these requirements uh, the other big thing, of course, now, I mean, we, we've talked about this many times on the podcast, but uh, you know, there's, what, 10,000 bits of sales and marketing technology out there. Uh, you know, I've worked with some businesses that seem like they've got all 10,000 of them. So you really need to assess the current tech stack you've got, what's going to go, what's going to stay, you know, what's an absolute mandatory, what data structures is all, is all of this stuff, where does it need to go? Um, so that that bit, you know, what probably many people would consider the RevOps bit, you know, that's really fundamental at the sort of third step. And we're only kind of halfway through the process here. Then once you've gone through that quagmire, and if you haven't given up at this point, then really it's about understanding and comparing the sort of the the critical functionality, features, capability of the different systems that are out there and how they map onto those goals. And then of course, brass tacks, can we actually afford it? Costs and obviously ROI, where's the value model? And then finally, actually understanding what what does that adoption plan look like? Because there are so many stakeholders in a CRM implementation from you know your user community to your IT function and all of the functions in the, the business that you have, which will be concerned with the utilization of that and the and the writing of customer data into it and the taking of data out of it. So, you know, adoption is so, so critical, isn't it? You know, you can go through this process of buying something which you think ticks all the boxes, but if you fall at the last hurdle of adoption and the change management piece, then it was all for naught. So, you know, for me, I'd say those were kind of the, the six primary steps. I mean, anything you want to add into that, Charles? It's quite interesting that you said about adoption. And actually, I mean, it's not quite a circular process, but if you talk about adoption, adoption is about making sure that the people in the business have bought into the process and understand what the business is trying to achieve. So that adoption goes right back to who are the stakeholders? Yeah. Right? So who are the stakeholders in a business? Well, if you're talking about objectives of the business, then obviously it's the business stakeholders. They are the people driving the business forward at the highest level. You're talking C-suite. You know, what is their five-year plan? The point of the C-suite is they say, this is my five-year plan. This is where I'm going to be in five years. Here's my strategy. Here's the customers I'm going to attract over the next five years in order to drive revenue. So that's their key focus. And then they have to break that five years down and say, so I now have a yearly plan. So that is their job to do that. So they should have those objectives. And, it, and basically, it might be a case of working with them to pull those objectives out and frame them in a way that then works. So I, I'm a big believer in KPIs. And KPIs should be you know, smart KPIs. And we all know about that specific, measurable, achievable, timed, all Realistic, that sort of stuff. All that good stuff. All yeah. that good stuff. <laughs> so they should have those. What is key then is to say, right, that is, as a business, what you're trying to do. Therefore, what is mar- what are marketing and sales roles within that? And again, if they're not clearly defined roles, then they need to be clearly defined roles. Marketing is generally 
about driving demand. So how do you tell your driving demand? So you've got to convert some of those business KPIs into what does a demand KPI look like? So when we say consult with stakeholders, the stakeholders are the highest level, C-suite. Then it's the marketing people and what they're doing. Then it's the sales people and what they're doing. Then it's the operational people who've got to deliver. Somebody has to deliver that product or service at the end. So they need to be engaged. You need to make sure that when sales hand over a sale or a contract, they actually hand it over in a reasonable state for somebody to do something with. (laughs) And effectively, if your CRM is operating correctly, all the data you need when you hand it over to your onboarding process or your or your customer success process or whatever you call it, you should have collected all that data. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be having to come back and go, what the hell is all this, this? about? <laughs> what, what is yeah. this? So they're another key stakeholder. Obviously, then, we're talking about RevOps. You may well have set up a function to help do this, so they're a key stakeholder. And finally, and I say finally, IT. This is not an IT-driven process. Yeah, IT is always an enabler. So we need to bring them on board. We need to make sure they're happy that this, whatever you're buying, actually fits into your ecosystem. But they are not a driver of this technology. They are somebody who looks at the technology and says, within our ecosystem, this will fit. This is fit for purpose. We know how we're going to drop it in. We know where the interfaces are. We know how we're going to join it to our website. We know how we're going to join it to our data lake. You know what I mean? These are key things where that's where IT's role come in. But that doesn't diminish that role. It is hugely important because we all see situations where we buy lumps of software and then it takes months and months and months to actually integrate it with what we've got. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking about total replacement here. You do not replace huge lumps of your system with other huge lumps because that just yeah. make that's just too much change in one go. No, absolutely. And I, I would probably add to that stakeholder list, or perhaps just a, maybe a refinement of that stakeholder list, which is, you know, when we're talking about speaking to marketing, speaking to sales, speaking to kind of service onboarding teams, you know, speaking to IT even, um, we're not just talking about speaking to the operational heads of those functions to understand what their specific functional objectives are. We're also talking about understanding the needs and actual behaviors of the user communities that sit within each of those functions. Because I, I, you know, we see this time and again in, in revenue operations projects. What the management of a function think they do and what the people that are responsible for actually doing the day-to-day tasks actually do from a process perspective is often quite different. You know, it's laddering up to the same things and that's not, you know, suggesting that there is some great, you know, (laughs) underlying issue happening in most businesses. It's more just the fact that the reality of day-to-day and the things people actually do are often missed and there can be really fundamental things that if they're not identified and scoped and the system that's selected is not capable of doing them or requires some massive, you know, custom effort to make it happen, you know, then that can be a real issue with, A, adoption, you know, oh, this is rubbish, it doesn't do it, you know, I'm just not going to use it. You know, that, that, that's a situation which happens, and that happens frequently. And and the other one, I think, is just in terms of that sort of timeline cost project impact of, 
oh yes we've engaged the consultants we've told them what we're going to do uh, or we're working with the software vendor and then suddenly you get this requirement that comes in at the 11th hour that derails things so those user community conversations are so so important absolutely really important I, you know because generally what happens in this situation when when i've done it you know yes you talk to the head of each section because they're the people setting the objectives but then you talk to the people who are actually trying to deliver those objectives and say how are you actually doing this how are you achieving this on a day-to-day basis what are the pain points how do you think we could solve that pain point because ultimately whatever system you build you need those people to engage with it so you need to show to them that you are going to make their life easier or quicker or more efficient You've got to make it work for them. Everybody's question, whenever they see change, is what's in it for me? And the biggest difficulty with change is if people don't see what's in it for them, they resist change. You know, there has to be a benefit for every stakeholder in the process. Yeah, so true. And, uh, you know, perhaps, well, certainly a stakeholder, perhaps not a, a visible but I, I, what I'm kind of driving at here is customers and customer expectation and customer experience and kind of the role that that plays within that stakeholder group. I think it's a really interesting subject. We, we talked about it at the top of the show. You know, Amazon shapes our expectation of how brands should talk to us. We've all had those experiences, as I was kind of detailing a recent one of mine, where, you know, CRM goes bad, or at least the people using it don't work out quite in the way that delivers against the customer expectations. So mapping those customer expectations, mapping the pain points, understanding, you know, how customers are interacting with us, and probably doing a bit of mystery shopping as well. Um, in terms of what does our competitor landscape look like? What's the actual experience of being a prospect with our organization? I think it's so easily missed. Um, something I, I've done in a previous life in the automotive industry is stress testing the sort of the CRM functions um, of car dealerships. Because, you know, you get that, you, you call up and say, I want to give you quite a lot of money to buy a brand new car. So often you don't get a call back, even <laughs> let alone, or you comes back and your name's wrong, or they've used some sort of cookie cutter template, which mentions a car that's not the one you inquired on. And, and you know, I think, but you speak to a dealer principal in that scenario, and they'll think that everything's perfect, because they've paid for this great big system that, that's supposedly doing all this great stuff but what's the actual experience of using what you've got right now so i i would really actually advocate people mystery shopping themselves if that's an appropriate thing to do based on your route to market and understanding what that what that experience is actually like particularly in consumer brands um and i think that those functional heads that we were talking about and those user communities you know you should be asking the question of you know what's your opinion on the customer experience what's the pain points what comes up you know what what do we get complaints about (laughs) you know how how can we solve for that so i think that's an important stakeholder uh, group which is somewhat difficult i think to represent in a true way but but you nevertheless need to endeavor to make sure that you're trying to capture that to the greatest degree possible because ultimately that's where roi will come from Absolutely. And I mean, most organizations do some form of customer satisfaction. So, I mean, there is an element of of taking that one stage further and getting a couple of your best customers in a room and saying, what do you like about us? What do you not like about us? How how do we communicate with you? Is it working for you? I mean, there is nothing like getting insight from customers. Yeah, they will very often say, yeah, you do these things really well and actually what the product you give me is good, but, 
there's nearly always a but. <laughs> yes, there's no just, yeah. <laughs> so again, it's, it's, you know, that's probably something the businesses should be doing anyway. Nothing mm-hmm. to do with a CRM system. Every, every business really should be looking at customer satisfaction surveys in some way. But again, that can be something that is fed into what is the customer experience? How can I improve it? And therefore, what do I want my system to do? And therefore, what sort of system do I need to be able to do this? So again, they are part, definitely part of the, of the stakeholder group. Excellent. So we've spoken to all of our stakeholders. We, we've started to get under the skin of what their requirements are. You know, the next step really is kind of really defining some goals for the project. I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on this because I think a lot of it's probably implied from what we were just talking about. But you know, what what's a good structure would you say for capturing those goals and and sort of codifying them at the start of the project? This is, I mean, this is an interesting one because what, what you don't want is a situation where you've, you've, you've worked out with all the stakeholders what your you know, five-year objectives are, what your three-year objectives are, what your one-year objectives are, and then suddenly go, right, now, we, now we're going to spend five years implementing something because that doesn't deliver value to the business. So when you're identifying your goals, this is about doing a, a quick assessment of where are the big pain points? Where could I have most impact in the shortest time to deliver against those objectives? So it's a basic assessment in terms of what you do well that you could improve and what you don't do so well and the opportunities in there. And that is literally, you know, get the relevant people in a room. You know, guys, what do you think we should be doing? Where can we have the most impact most quickly? Ignoring the system, so you then assess all those things you could do. You put them into buckets of now, next, later. <laughs> if it, to be fair, if it drops into the too difficult, too expensive bucket, then it's a later. Wait till wait till the technology catches up. You know, because you'll just spend a lot of time trying to do something that is not possible to do. Um, mm-hmm. And and I again, I've done this with lots of people, and actually, most people, it's it's not. It's not even scientific. Once you've listed all the things you could do, most people go, it's that one, that one, and that one. I need yeah. those now. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, yeah. So people can get very uptight about how do you do this. It, sometimes it's just gut feel. Mm-hmm. Obviously, even when people have gone, I want those five things in the next six months, you then go away and do a bit of an assessment on them in a, in a bit more rigor. How much would this cost? How would I actually put this onto the CRM system? What data do I need to support it? You know, have I got those interfaces in place? So you do a more rigorous assessment, but generally it's like get everybody in a room and get them to select what they want and yeah. turn those into, you know, those are the goals. So in the next six months, I'm going to deliver one, two, three, four, five, right? Here's the plan for delivering one. That's a six-week sprint. Here's the plan for delivering two. That's another six-week. You know, actually, I can set up two sprint teams, so I can do these things side by side, whatever it is. Yeah, I'm not going to go into the way you do sprints because that's another subject altogether. But that's the way everybody is working now. It's like, yeah. I want delivery. I want it soon. I don't want it in 18 months' time. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning actually this sort of point of the opportunity impact assessment that when one has stakeholders, stakeholder management becomes a a real priority because 
so often when you actually sit people in a room and you say, what are all the problems? Where are the pain points? Quite often, lots of those have been felt, but they haven't necessarily been voiced. But as soon as they go on to a plan, there then becomes an expectation that they will be solved. And very often, there's a commercial reality at play that says some of those things aren't going to happen no matter how bad they are this year you know, or in whatever time period you care to choose. So I think it's worth just having a bit of a call out here to say the process by which you capture these, it will do you many favors to say what we're doing here is building a plan based on the greater needs of the business and the budget that's available right now. And these are things that may happen, not things that will happen once you've said them and put them on a piece of paper and or by whatever mechanism you want to tee people up. But I think that's really important to not create false expectation at this stage that everything's magically going to be fixed as soon as this system lands, because it probably isn't. Absolutely. And, and, and that is key. I mean, yeah, when you say identify your goals, you've got all of the goals, but it's identify in the goals in which it makes sense to deliver them to make a difference to your business. And as we know, with the pandemic and people working from home and all the other things that are going on in the world, you start on a journey and identify some goals. In 12 months' time, your goals may have changed. Mm -hmm. So in all probability, a goal that you say, mm, I probably can't deliver that for 18 months, may not be there in 18 months. So again, it's about working out the things you can actually deliver now that will make a difference. And then all the time, you're going to be assessing the goals going forward. That's a circular process. I've got this far. I've delivered this. That has improved this. It has given me these extra capabilities, which have delivered this much more revenue. Okay, let's go back and look at the next set that I put in the original plan. Here's the next set. Do they still make sense? <laughs> you know, I think, I, I, yeah, listening to you talk here, and I think I've just got to interject at this point to say, if all of this sounds difficult, it's because it is, and that's why you should have a RevOps function in your business, because this is what a RevOps function does, is take these long time horizons, 18 months, 24 months, beyond. You know, The goals are always changing because business requirements are always changing, and this is what a RevOps function does, is owns this problem, <laughs> this process, these stakeholder interactions, and make stuff happen and constantly reassesses and delivers and designs and uh, delivers sprints against solving the problems that are identified and change over time. So I think it, it is just worth probably shouting out here and saying, if you think you're going to engage with Salesforce, you know, a vendor, a partner, and you're going to pay them an amount of money and then things are going to be fixed forever. They're not because, you know, there isn't a constant state in the business, generally speaking, uh, is always changing and, and, and therefore the project will always be evolving. And if it doesn't always evolve, then you're going to have problems down the track. So get a RevOps function or Absolutely. an agency to deliver it for you. <laughs> in fact, don't think in terms of this is a project with a start date and an end date. And I know this might frighten people. You break things down into projects or sprints or whatever you want, whatever you want to do to control periods of time. But this is not an 18-month project. This is not a six-week sprint. It's actually an ongoing process of improving your business, using technology to improve your business. And if anybody tells me their business can't be improved, I don't believe them. Every mm -hmm. business can be improved. Every business is buying technology all the time. 
the last set of stats was that everybody had 98 pieces of CRM software because they've <laughs> they've got a CRM software, then they've plugged a video in, a video capability into it, and then they've plugged a capability to do push notifications. Then they've plugged in the capability to pull in PDFs. You know what I mean? So yeah. this technology is always changing, and people do stuff because they have a pain point. If you don't manage how they do stuff, they will do it themselves. And then yeah. you lose control. And, and that's a really good, I think, um, segue into talking about step three, which is kind of assessing the tech stack. And, yeah. you know, when we do discovery now, I, I haven't stopped asking people yet what technology they have in the business. But what we've absolutely been doing for some time now is saying, please, can you send me the journal from your account system, which has the title software and subscriptions or whatever it is, because there is always, always, not just a gap, but a gulf between what people think they have and what they're paying for, because there is so many little things, as you just alluded to, that plug in, that facilitate this, that do some back office function that no one even remembers they've got, but it's sticking things together. Um, so, you know, assessing that tech stack is not just what CRM have we got now and what are we moving to, it's actually what does that ecosystem of technology in your business look like and how does it all talk to each other and and that is no small task unless it's a very small business yeah and you've got to remember people in your business have business credit cards and some of this technology is cheap enough to buy on a business credit card so again just because you talk to it it don't always know this stuff exists People just buy it and install yeah. it. The, the, yeah, shadow IT is a thing for a reason. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because we we talk about no code systems now. You know, there are a lot of systems out there that don't require any technical in quotes knowledge at all. But you're not writing code. You are basically engaging with a website and you are ticking boxes, and eventually it gives you a capability. So. Yeah. Often your IT people are no longer involved in those choices. So again, it's it's really don't just go to the IT people and say, "What's the tech stack?" You've got to go again. You've got to go across the whole business and say, "How are you delivering this stuff?" Yeah, yeah. Are people just writing documents in Word, and effectively that is their content management system for anything that's in text? Mm. Are people just using photos and using that as a content management system. I've seen it happen, you know? (laughs) I I just want to touch briefly on what you said about low code and no code. I mean, uh, as a, you know, as a sort of revenue operations professional, it makes my blood run cold to uh, to know that actually there's this little thing in most people's um, Microsoft 365 environment called Power Platform, and with which they can design their own automations and their own applications um, and build their own kind of reporting dashboards. And they can do all of this without speaking to anybody, even necessarily in their own management of their own function, let alone anyone that's kind of aggregating this up at an organizational level. Um, so having governance around your implementation of low and no code is a business fundamental now either lock it down or have a citizen development program which is really robustly managed because otherwise there are problems you know coming at you over the horizon and this is not about control 
this is not just about control of, of software and control of functionality. We go back up. This is about delivering a consistent customer experience. If people are using different platforms holding the same information, it will be delivered in an inconsistent way. So I mentioned that whole thing about branding. You know, At a brand level, you need to be consistent about what you're saying, who to, what it looks like, all those sorts of things that make people think, Okay, these people know what they're doing. Yeah. And it's about it's about being consistent. Because if you don't look consistent, that will change people's view of your business. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, when we're assessing that tech stack, it's really taking a broad view of everything that that could be in the tech stack because there'll be some things that you haven't thought of that there just always are um so really getting to a, a source of truth on what those things are and what they're doing it becomes about understanding the functionality of each one of those bits of technology understanding the user communities of each one of those bits of technology and then really understanding i think probably most crucially how they talk to each other absolutely because when you start taking stuff out or putting stuff in, it's not the individual components that break. It's the it's how they talk to each other. And it's so, so crucial to have, as you were just saying, a consistent view of customer data. And if things are feeding that data environment and they break, then you're either losing data points, you're duplicating data points, or you're losing consistency in formatting or whatever's going on. But any of it has the potential to be have fairly serious ramifications in your ability to deliver kind of successful, consistent, you know, high quality customer comms. And and again, it's like the tech stack has a responsibility for moving people through the journey and moving them from one stage to another and making sure interfaces correctly and moves the data from from one part of your tech stack to another part of your tech stack. And similarly, there's an underlying operational process. So actually people know that something has moved from one state to another. So it's no good at just moving. You've got to then tell somebody who's responsible for doing something with that customer at that point in time. So again, yes. it's, it's both of these things. It's what does the tech stack do? What does the operation do? Which again brings us back to RevOps because they know what the tech stack is trying to do and they help design that process that sits underneath it and moves stuff through it from one department to another. Yeah, yeah. And and it's so sometimes difficult to get a handle on. I thought they'd actually just sort of um, make a point here that when we're talking about the tech stack, I think it's not just like the CRM that you've got right now and what plugs into it. What I'm seeing increasingly at the moment is businesses that have two CRMs that are doing different things in different parts of the business and they're talking to each other. So you've got, you know, what you might describe as a marketing CRM like a HubSpot that people are using for their landing pages and for their email marketing and for, you know, managing their ads and that's got customer data in it. But for one reason or another, they've got Salesforce historically in their sales organization or Microsoft Dynamics and that's driving operational functions and there's resistance to removing it or there's some requirement to have it. So it is worth, I think, just talking about when we're talking about replacing a CRM, sometimes a question of which one are we replacing and can they be brought together? And I think that really comes into that stakeholder management piece and the management of things like what is an SQL in one system might not be the same in another. And I think that's um, that's another point to kind of grasp at here, which is what does that whole environment look like and how does not just the, the functionality look like, but how does the data code across these systems as well? 
um, and does does it mean the same thing to everyone using them? And interestingly, that does actually segue into the compare critical features and capabilities, particularly if you've got two CRMs. So, mm-hmm. so if you've got HubSpot doing some of the work and Salesforce doing some of the work or Pipedrive doing some of the work, obviously you need to map what are your current capabilities and identify the gaps in those capabilities. So based on assessing the tech stack and what your goals are, you look at the whole of that and say, Okay, here are the critical features and capabilities that I need. Now then, let's map that onto my current tech stack and I can identify the gaps. Okay, one objective might be I need to simplify my tech stack. So it could be that you go, okay, HubSpot is doing all this at the moment. What else can it do? And actually, it might cover off other functions and features that you need that you've currently added organically using other other technology. So there is yeah. an opportunity to simplify your tech stack. Or you might say, actually, it's so complicated, and actually I've fallen out of love with Salesforce, or I've fallen out of love, or it costs too much, or whatever, and I actually want to replace you know this whole bunch of stuff. Um, generally, I would always say it's a good idea to optimize what you've got first, and try and cut cost out of it and see if you can make it work harder. And if you can do that, that might be, it might be a good exercise to do anyway and then say, right, now we know exactly what we're doing. Now we know what we want and we know what the gaps are. Let's replace, let's get best of breed in that area or best of breed in that area or something cheaper or something with more functionality. But in broad terms, this is where you get to the compare critical features and capabilities. What do you need it to do? What is your tech stack currently doing? What do you need to replace? And if if there's a big chunk that just isn't working, then you replace a big chunk. If it's a case of extending capability in one area and reducing in another area, then do that. But it's key, again, to work out all these things. This isn't just a big tick list of, I need 150 features who's got 150 features. Your business is running now. If you need 150 features, you've got 120 of them right now. You're just not delivering them in a controlled, consistent way. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in business. If you're sending emails to people, everybody sends emails. You're sending emails right now. Every business is sending emails right now. How are they sending them? Are they consistent? Are they always branded the same? Are they going to the right customers? We all have heard spray and pray. And there are still a lot of businesses in that, you know, as soon as I've got an email, I'm going to start sending him emails every week until he responds. You know, this is not a good, efficient way to do things. And so often the reason that 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 spray and pray approach is, um, is still so prevalent is because they lack the ability or the confidence or the resource to deliver effective segmentation. So it's the only way they can do it. It's a sort of, you know, throw enough mud and, you know, it's bound to stick to the ones that you wanted it to, uh, which obviously is wrong. <laughs> but sometimes it's the only way. Uh, and I think that sort of ability to segment is, is, is such a crucial feature. Speaking of features, I think as we're looking at, you know, comparing different systems, I think it's also worth making the point that when you're looking at a website or you're talking to a vendor and they say, yes, it does that, you know, not all features are created equal. And there's a few that I think that I I would just call out to really interrogate within a demo environment 
before you make a choice to, to move. The top of that list for me, although there are definitely some competition in it, is kind of the reporting and dashboarding functionality within that system. You know, businesses run on their ability to make good decisions based on data. And I would say the the, the single biggest requirement that, that I often see when we're running these projects is this requirement for a single source of truth. You know, I've got loads of systems, there's loads of data in all of them. We put all of these into spreadsheets and we spend weeks coming up with, you know, with a data model. Make sure that whatever CRM you pick, it can deliver that function or at least interface with something. I know you're going to talk about data lakes in a second and various other things, as I know that's a favor of yours from an analytics and reporting standpoint, <laughs> is there are other, other things that can do it. But make sure, I would say, that your ability to deliver critical business information that is reliable, automated, and that everyone has confidence in, and, and really interrogate how that's actually going to happen, not just see a snazzy part on the website that says we do reports. Absolutely, because the biggest question anybody asks, if you if you do a project or you do a series of developments over a period of time and you get to a point where you do a review, you know, and all businesses do what? Quarterly reviews or whatever they do. Somebody's going to say, we've just invested money in doing this. You know, we've just paid people to do this. Is it working? You've got to be able to answer that question. Otherwise, your credibility falls apart and people go, why, why are we doing this? Remind me, why are we doing this? But again, it comes back to how, if you've set those objectives, those goals at the beginning, then those goals should run right the way through what you're doing. So if your goal was, I need to increase my conversion rate or whatever it is, if you have a goal that says, of the 100 prospects I get in each quarter, I'm currently converting 10, right? So by the end of the year, I want to be converting 12 of those. And that will increase my revenue by 20%. Not a bad objective to have. I mean, there's probably a bit more detail needs to go into that. <laughs> but actually, then what you need is something on your dashboard that says that, that actually rate. has a conversion rate, but monitors it over time and draws mm. the necessary graph and says, actually, our conversion rate is that. In terms of revenue, that additional conversion rate has delivered this. In terms of the cost in order to put the changes in to deliver that actual revenue was this. Therefore, I'm making this much more profit. Mm -hmm. If you can have that conversation with your C-suite, they go, wow. Yeah. And, and you know, on that point, yeah, yes, we're tracking our conversion rate because we want to, but the reason we want to improve our conversion rate, as you, as you say, is to improve profitability. Well, then are we actually tracking profitability in there? And is it, you know, yes, the conversion rate might be going up, but is profitability going up at the same rate? And are those two things linked? And I think that's, you know, can we do that within our reporting environment? I think that's a really important one. I think the other thing which inevitably comes off the back of that is integrations. You know, integrations are fundamental now. They're, they're not a nice to have. Uh, and, and almost every system says they've got a whole suite of integrations off the shelf that'll do stuff and they can build you things. But And particularly those off-the-shelf integrations, some of them are really, really good because they've been done natively and very clever people have spent quite a lot of time working out how they're going to work. The problem that I seem to find very frequently with those off-the-shelf integrations is, yes, they say they integrate one system with another. Those very clever people tend to be developers. And those developers don't necessarily know how your business runs 
or any business, in fact. Um, so does that integration match the way that you're actually delivering your processes in terms of how data goes from one point to another? Um, you know, there, there is a particular integration I'm thinking of which connects to CRM systems, um, which forces you to move data between different life cycle stages at certain points. And if that doesn't match your sales process, it's completely irrelevant. The integration exists. It doesn't do what you need it to do. So you need to write something. So again, going back to that, here's the features that I would really interrogate. How do those integrations work would be one of them. Another one, which I know is probably going to be a favorite of yours, Charles, is you know around data quality management. Does the system have the functionality to create a consistent and accurate formatting of data does it have the ability to cleanse data as it comes through to deduplicate it you know it's so often overlooked i think absolutely i mean yeah and and coding systems do coding systems move through again when you implement a piece of technology you normally have to codify lots of elements of it so what products am i selling what, what are the codes for those products? Because those th- sorts of things are already embedded in your business and they're not easy to change. So again, it's like looking at how you're going to hold this data, how you're going to keep it consistent, how you're going to keep it secure. There's the whole area of InfoSec these days where you need to make sure you know, you've done penetration testing, all that. So these become requirements of every system. So there's a whole list of things that are nothing to do with CRM, but are basic requirements of every system. And one of those is the data interfaces and how do you control them? Who's got access to that data? Why have they got access to that data? Do I need to break it up into who can see what, where? Is the data always consistent, up-to-date, coded correctly? Am I mapping customers who come in via mobile to the same customers who come in via laptop? Yeah, am I doing that identity management correctly? So there's a lot of features and capability just around data because data, everything relies on that data being accurate. And if that data is not accurate or you can't get at it or you can't get the elements of data that you want to get at, then again, the, the system sort of breaks down. People need access to data to be able to do their jobs. Absolutely. Just a final point here. I think one particular hobby horse of mine, which I think arguably isn't a feature, but is absolutely fundamental to the successful implementation or usage of a system, is actually user interface design. Just because something does everything you need it to do on paper, if it is so impenetrable and so unpleasant to use use that your team are going to hate it, are going to need constant training requirements, are just going to disengage with it, probably shouldn't mention a certain uh, vendor here which is really rather popular with most it companies that does a something called dynamics um that that's a problem for me um they are just not user-friendly and i think the more user-friendly a system would be the more value you will get from that system and i think for me that's something i've just seen time and again um and I think that brings us into our, our penultimate point around kind of considering costs and ROI. I don't want to dwell too long on this, mostly because we've talked probably for too long already. But you know, when we're looking at costs, it's not just how much does one system, how much does system A cost, and how much does system B cost. As we've already alluded to talking about tech stack, it's what does that technology landscape look like? What are you going to enable you to remove from that landscape in terms of replacing functionality and feature set? Um, and therefore, where's the saving going to be? And I think also talking about conversion rate, as as you were a moment ago, because these systems 
deliver customer communications, what uplift can we expect in terms of our you know, deal velocity, our improvement in customer experience, our conversion rates from having you know things like better landing pages or email functionality or better segmentation or whatever it is that that system is going to facilitate. So you've got to take all that stuff into account in terms of building that ROI model. And it may be that one system, which looks really cheap, but doesn't actually do any of this stuff is going to be incredibly difficult to implement is actually going to have a fundamentally massively lower ROI than something which initially looks quite expensive. I mean, would you add anything to, to that, Charles, in terms of cost and ROI? Yeah, I mean, it is. And it, it's like the whole thing about the total cost of ownership. So going back to your point about how, how what's, the, what's the sort of user experience? Again, if you buy a solution you're not just buying the solution, you're buying the training that goes with that solution, you're buying the support that goes with that solution, you're buying the fact that you may need people to actually, you may need additional people to actually operate that solution. Now, what that might mean ultimately is if you're dealing with higher volumes of customers, you need to invest in people as well as the system. So again, it's looking at that whole total cost of ownership that might be offset by it's more efficient in the way it does stuff. So again, it's looking at all of those things. If in the current uh, state of affairs, you need five people to manage 5,000 customers, it could be that actually once you've implemented this system, you don't need those five people managing 5,000 customers, you only need three people managing 5,000 customers, but actually you need maybe needed two people who are more focused on data capture and bringing in new customers. So again, it's, it's about looking at that whole thing, not just the system. The system is one element, but you know how are you going to operate this? What do the people skills look like? What's the support? Do you have to pay for support? How much support do you get? So it's looking at that whole thing when you when you look yeah. at costs and return. And I, I think you know another another great segue. It's almost like we've planned this into the final point, which is around implementation. And, and I think that identifying the resources that you need internally and externally to kind of support that implementation from a technical standpoint um, is really key. I think as is having some really realistic expectations around how long that's going to take. I mean, we've been talking about timelines here which go beyond a year. And I think that's really quite normal, um, particularly when you're looking at, at more sort of custom feature set things which might not fall into a current budget um you know allocation stuff that needs to be done in the next financial whatever it might be we're looking at some fairly long timelines here so expectation setting managing timelines and really prioritizing the goals that need to be delivered now kind of looping right back to the start almost um is really key um so i think you know that those are really important parts of the implementation piece but i think the one thing that that i would say in terms of almost a parting thought on this is that you really need to develop what i would call an adoption strategy so having things like you know call them power users champions whatever you like but people that are in all your critical teams that really really get it and you've invested probably time and therefore money into training that can be the advocates that can be that source of knowledge within the team to help people do stuff i think is really key um you know building out resources as part of that adoption strategy um so that people can kind of quickly access how do i do this where is this you know what happens um if something goes wrong whatever that might be 
And I think also it's things like um, just having the right rolling program of training, not expecting that just because you corral everyone into a room for an hour and tell them how the new system works, that that's actually going to be retained by anyone. You know, having a program over time that works, having support functionality, as you alluded to, that goes beyond the initial implementation phase with your vendor, I think is really, really critical as well as part of that adoption strategy. Uh, any final thoughts on kind of implementation? Well, the one key thing I would say here, again, is all businesses are different in detail. You know, they may be trying to do the same thing in broad terms, but they're different in detail. So what I would say is key is, yes, all of these systems have a lot of online documentation, but don't rely on that. Build your own playbook. This is how we as a business operate this system. These are the 25 things we do and how we do them. Now, within that, you can then say, actually, in detail, if you need to go to this screen and do this stuff, you know, here's a link to the uh, online documentation that tells you how to do that. But build your own playbook. Again, that's how you get consistency. Because people, if you've got detailed instructions online, people will interpret them in different ways. And when I talk about a playbook, I'm talking about, you know, maximum like 20-page document. But it says... This is how we acquire a customer. This is where we expect them to come from. This is what we capture when we see that customer. This is where yeah. we put it into the system. And step by step, you know, Janet and John, if the key person in that department was run over by a bus and somebody walked in, what document would they pick up and go, oh, I can see how yeah. this works? That is a key document. Yeah, such a good point, kind of documenting those operational processes. So just to sum up then what we've been talking about today, so when choosing and you know the right CRM for RevOps purposes, really it pays right at the start to understand the full breadth of capability of what a CRM system can do from the vendors like Salesforce, like HubSpot. Um, then it's really about consulting with your stakeholders and your key users, helping identify and crucially prioritize those goals whilst managing expectations then you really need to assess that broader tech stack how it all stitches together what's in it what it does to enable a conversation later on about what needs to stay what needs to go and how you know it needs to be integrated into that broader set of functionality then really it's about looking at your shortlist and comparing critical features and functionality and capability not just on paper but in practice then really about looking when we come to costs and ROI not just you know cheapest is rarely best and we need to look at the broader ROI that can be delivered both in terms of improved uh, capability from uh, in our ability to convert customers and also looking at what else needs to be removed so looking at the true sort of holistic cost of the implementation and then it's all about finally outlining an adoption plan that does goes way beyond the technical implementation and really focuses on user adoption um, so that's hopefully been a, a helpful insight um, into how to choose the right CRM to power your RevOps function. Um, before we go, I just have a small request, which is if you've enjoyed the show today, and we hope you have, it really helps us um, to find a wider audience. If you can subscribe on whatever channel you're listening on and rate the podcast as well, but particularly subscribing, that would be fantastic. And equally, you know, if you're hungry for some more RevOps content before next week, then check out revops-lab.com where you'll see some really interesting resources on there. So just leaves me to say thank you, Charles. It has been fantastic as ever getting your insight on this. 
and we will see you all next week. Cheers, Chris. Thank you very much. 